0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It's photographing
1: uh, seriously in, in Asia and I would take two rolls of film a day at 76 exposures. And when I would tell people that their draws would drop to the floor, they, they found that there was unimaginable. That was insane. And they would say that that was insane amount of pictures to take in one day. And, um, the idea that that everybody would be taking them really would, would just, nobody would believe that they would say, well, what would I, why would I take 20 pictures a day? That's how, how could anybody do that? And that's just to show kind of how we change what we do based on the availability of it. And, you know, we've been talking about AI. It's, when AI enables us these new um, abilities, we right now may have difficulty imagining how we would use them or why we would use them, but we're going
0: to use them because they're available. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. Kevin, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: It's my pleasure. Always a delight to chat with you, and I'm especially happy to share my thoughts with your
0: fans and audience. Yeah, well, you have a new book out called Excellent Advice for Living. And uh, I think the thing that struck me most was that it was kind of a, a departure from some of your previous books that were largely focused around technology and innovation, whereas as this one is really life advice that you've compiled over 50, 60 years, it sounds like. Uh, but before we get into the book, I want you to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up influencing and shaping what you've ended up doing with your life and career?
1: That's a great question. Um, my mom was a housewife. We, we, she had five kids in five years. So at one point she had a one year old, two year old, three year old, four year old and a five year old. I was the oldest of the five. Um, and that was her full time job. My dad, um, Began as a degree in meteorology in in the 40s, and that was one of the first places they ever used computers to try to predict the weather. He got involved then in trying to program computers, but he wasn't really a born programmer. Um, he was much more kind of like interested in that, and so he um, knew enough programming to consult on it, and he got a job with a consultancy, Price Waterhouse helping people computerize their business. And um, one of their clients was Time Life, the magazine. And so my dad wound up working, uh, leaving Pricewaterhouse and working for Time Life in their, what we would now call their IT department. And it was called at that time, operations research. And um, again, they were trying to basically digitize, although they didn't use that term, computerize the, the company time, life. If you could imagine having a million subscribers to your magazines without computers, it's like, it's like, it boggles my mind how they could possibly have kept track of, yes. of people's subscriptions without a computer. Um, at, at that scale. So anyway, that was one of the first things they did. And then they went on to try and bring computers into the rest of the company. Um, including doing uh, Page Layout, um, which is what my father was involved in. But that was not his true, he was not that technical, and he eventually wound up working in some of Time Life's um, new acquisitions. One of them was Manhattan Cable TV, which became, over time, HBO. So my dad inadvertently kind of wound up being involved in the new media of cable TV. Um, even though I grew up without TV, we didn't have it in our house when I was younger. Um, so in a weird way, he was, and, and I had, I wanted nothing to do with what my dad was interested in. So like, I was not interested in computers and I was not interested in, um, big publishing, but <laughs> the <laughs> planet, sorry, yeah, you know,
0: fate has a sense of humor. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> I wanted to be a hippie. I was, uh, you know, I was a hippie. I didn't own anything. I had a bicycle and a sleeping bag, and I was spent most of my time in Asia, uh, remote parts of Asia for, for many years, and I was interested in photography uh, at a time before photography was cool and when photography was very, very expensive and very difficult to do. Originally, you had to develop. You had to be a chemist. You had to develop your own pictures and all that you had, and, you know, chemistry and optics, And it was expensive Um, when I was photographing in Asia to take a color picture of a scene would be an equivalent of $5 per snapshot, you know, per picture today. Imagine, you know, if you had to pay $5 every time you snapped a picture on your phone,
0: it's crazy. So that's what my dad did. So a couple of questions come from that. Uh, The first is about growing up in a family of that many kids. I wonder what growing up in such a large family taught you about navigating social dynamics and, uh, how that has ended up applying to both your uh, professional life and your business career.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I was almost a five. So all, so we went through everything together. We went through elementary school, basically as a, as a group. We went through middle school and high school together. And so, um, my closest brother. Who's only one year younger than I am? We shared a room for most of our lives. Um, we've never had an argument in our entire lives, even at this age. Um, so I think I learned. It was very tight quarters. We weren't wealthy, we, you know. We were sharing bedrooms and everything else. Uh, so I think I learned to share pretty early. Um, and we really wasn't that much of a difference between us so that we could really feel like we were comrades. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I guess that was, I, I think our family, is that very vocal? I, even to this day when both my parents have passed, but I have no idea what their political, um, uh, alignment was. I have no idea. I have no idea what who they voted for. I have no idea what they thought. They just never, ever discussed it. So, um, it was sort of, uh, old school in that way where, um, uh, my my parents were reserved in, in that way, maybe even emotionally reserved. So, um, I I was comfortable with that because that's how, that's how we grew up.
0: So, how in the world do you get from photography to, uh, being the founder of Wired to writing all these books? Because I'd imagine much like everybody else, I don't think your trajectory is very yeah. linear. And even hearing you talk about photos, I was thinking about this because, you know, when my sister had her baby, my dad and I were talking about this, uh, you know, he's, uh, 70 and I asked, him, I was like, how many photos do you have of when you're a kid? He's like two yeah. or three. And we said, did you realize this kid? Yeah, you my know, my nephew has had more photos taken of him in four months than all of us probably combined have had taken yeah. of us in our yeah. lifetime. It's,
1: it's true. I uh speaking of photography, my family had a brownie camera and would have a uh, there was a roll family that was twenty-four roll twenty-four exposures in one roll, and they would do one a year. One, 24 pictures a year. So they'd take some around Christmas, you know, us opening presents maybe one on Halloween over the costumes, maybe one at Easter. And I, I, when I was a kid, I built a model railway layout that I did the wiring for. And I was like 10 years old and I'd do all this stuff. Later on, when I was 12, I built a nature museum with exhibits and had kids collecting stuff with, uh, you know, how rocks, ultraviolet, how wings work, all this stuff. And I built a chemistry lab later on when I was older. There's not a single picture of any of that. All right. <laughs> not a single one. Never. I mean, it wasn't that I lost them. They was just never taken. No one ever thought yeah. to photograph that. So yeah. So we're in a different world where, where, um, photography is sort of default. And by, by the way, um, if you had told, well, when I was photographing, um, uh, seriously in, in Asia and I would take two rolls of film a day at 76 exposures. And when I would tell people that their draws would drop to the floor, They they found that there was unimaginably, that was insane. And they would say that that was insane amount of pictures to take in one day. And, um, the idea that, that everybody would be taking them really would, would just nobody would believe that they would say, well, what would I, why would I take? 20 pictures a day, that's, how how could anybody do that? And that's just to show kind of how we change what we do based on the availability of it. And, you know, we've been talking about AI, it's when AI enables us these new um, abilities, we right now may have difficulty imagining how we would use them or why we would use them, but we're going to use them because they're available.
0: that to Wired Magazine, I, because I remember you telling me some of these things the, the first time we spoke, and I mean, you were pretty early at the forefront of writing about some of these things, thinking about some of these things, because I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, Wired was founded when I was in college.
1: Yeah, it was actually founded almost exactly 30 years ago. It was, we wow. launched the first issue, I think it was in February of uh, um, 2003, and no, no, no. I mean, uh, 1993. Sorry, 1993. And so, um, um, how it's a very circuitous journey, um, full of detours and completely unplanned and unintentional and inadvertent. So I, um, as I said, I was a kind of a hippie-ish person who dropped out of college, and went to Asia with a tiny, tiny amateur camera. Um, and I got on Asia because it became my university. I, 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 everything was happening on the street and everything was open and everything was different and, and weird and unbelievable. Um, and it was hugely diverse, you know, between Turkey and Japan and Siberia and Indonesia. I mean, it's this huge diversity and half the people of the world live there. And so, um, Uh, I just could have, couldn't have enough of, um, learning from, from Asia. And, um, uh, but I wasn't interested in really technology and that kind of stuff and, um, came back, um, started to write about travel because I knew a lot about that. Um, we decided I wanted to go in business, try business. And I decided the best way I thought about going to business school, but the uh, decided the best way was actually to do something to make a little business, take two hundred dollars to see if I could start a business, and I would learn more that way, which is absolutely true and so i st- I was trying to do a mail order catalog about uh, travel books that I knew about that nobody else knew about that were that I would import like this guy named Rick Steves that nobody had heard of. He had some books, and um Tony and uh, Maureen Wheeler had books called Lonely Planet and so I started to Make a mail order catalog for these books. And I was working at a a science lab in the University of Georgia and they had a computer, an Apple IIe to do the number crunching. And I figured out that you could get a modem to transmit the um, stuff that I would type up to make a catalog to send it to a local printer to print out to print. And that modem opened up the world to me. When I got the modem, Onto the little Apple, there was this, there were bulletin boards. There was, this, there was the beginning of the online world. This is in the early eighties, like 81 or uh, 82. And so, um, that changed, that changed my relationship because for the first time, there was a technology that seemed to me to be closer to human scale. It seemed more organic. It seemed almost like Amish in a certain weird way of being able to, communicate with others who are like-minded, you know, wherever they were. And and there was something about that. And so I became interested in online. I was starting to report on the online world as if it was another continent. It was like another Asia, another country. And then I got myself invited on to some of these experimental ones. And one of them, the experimental places was where the Whole Earth catalog was a writing, um, was doing Computer reviews, software reviews, tool reviews. And then I got hired at the catalog and we started to do other things online, including making the first public access to the internet, which was called the well in 1984. And so that, that was the route. It was coming through the online world, living online, learning to write online, learning to type. And, um, that, that world of, of, of seeing people blossom and collaborate online was how I became interested in technology. And it forced me to re-look at all technologies and to see it in a different light because I saw a more organic view of it through the online
0: communities and the online world. Uh, I want to bring back a clip from our last conversation, which I think will make a perfect segue into what's going on in the world today, as well as your new book. Take a listen.
1: I truly do believe that this is both the very best time in the history of the universe, as far as we can tell, at least the history of this world, to make something because the tools for creation have never been more easily gotten, they've been never been cheaper, they've never been better, they've never been as diverse. And they truly are, make things more accessible. So if you want to make something that has been made already, like in terms of like, like a book, a movie, a song, some of the tools to do that are just about free and which means almost anybody in the world can get their hands on it And all, and many of these things in previous generations were prohibitively expensive and really relegated to the elites. But now you can make a book that looks as good as a book that hottest bestseller author can make and you can distribute it It costs very little to do.
0: So, you know, I I thought that would be an interesting jump off point from our previous conversation uh, because of the fact that I feel like what you said there, which I, I think it was probably five years ago is, a hundred times more true today than it was then. And um, I remember, you know, as I was saying before we hit record, I read your article uh, that you called picture limitless creativity at your fingertips. And I think the couple of things that struck me most were a couple of lines. You said that generative AI will alter how we design just about everything. Oh, and not a single human artist will lose their job because of this new technology. So Talk to me about that idea, uh, in the connection with what you said to me in that clip. That no one's going to lose their job, you mean? Yeah. 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 Uh, in addition to being the best time to make things.
1: Well, yeah, so, so it is still the best time to make things. It's even better than five years ago. Um, just parenthetically, one of the advances on these, um, generative AIs, which can produce Unlimited and kind of ceaseless creativity in a, a picture a two dimension like a photograph or a painting is that um that's not really the real superpower the real superpower is going to be used in making video and games and three d worlds because those are things right now that are still not as um easy to to do yourself I mean it takes. Team and money still, even today with the current tools, if you want to make a movie, a long feature-length movie, it still requires an incredible team and and a budget of some sort. But with future AI tools, like the image generators, you'll be able to, to to do that from your bedroom, and that will be a huge thing because right now the movie image is the center of our culture. It's not books, it's not you know, it's not opera, it's not it's not uh, Text, it's not blogs, it's not even TikTok or social media. It's the moving image is this is the kind of the the gravity, the pivot of our of our culture. And so being able to produce those in full dimensions and fully rendered scenes that are inhabited and populated by characters who are consistent over time, that that's a huge step. In this kind of making everything available. So, so, so we have not yet got there, but we're on our way. And, and that's, that's why these, uh, generative tools are so exciting because they're pointing us in that direction. Um, yeah. so, so yes, so I think that's still true. Um, the, the question about employment is, I think a little bit of a, of a distraction. Um, I, I've been trying to find an actual case of somebody who lost their job. Due to AI in any capacity, whether it's a radiologist, a lawyer, an artist or something. I haven't found anybody, the real nay, who says, I lost my job because of AI. I think I might be able to find somebody in whose business it was transcribing text or audio into text. There were mm-hmm. people who do that. And I can't imagine anybody still doing that by human because AI is so much better. But I haven't yet actually gotten their name to see whether they actually did lose their job or whether they've just worked for someone else, you know, whatever. So I don't know. Um, so the, the, the reason is, is that I think our tasks will change. You'll still have the job doing whatever it is. Designers, they, you know, these things right now are primarily partners. They're they're the universal intern. They are partners at the best. Um, the, as long as the audience for the kind of finished product is a human, humans are going to be in, involved because we have a very good sense of what other humans like and is as well-trained as they are, they don't have a clue. And so, um, and so we, uh, we're going to primarily, the, the relationship we'll have is, of uh, interns, assistants, partners, guides, um, you know, things on the side, um, the, the kind of what I call the, the centaur stance of a hybrid of a, a team. And, um, that's, you know, there will be certain amount of stuff that's completely generated by AI that doesn't have any human involved, but that's mostly going to be used for where there is no, where it's blank right now. It's sort of like, um, we'll have pictures where there are no pictures at all. Or, or, or sound and music where there is no sound. So like right now, this, this conversation right now has no scoring, no soundtrack, but it could have a soundtrack in the back that's being generated with AI to match whatever it is that we're saying. So yeah. that's the kind of thing where we have this kind of completely automated, auto uh, generated, um, uh, creativity is, is not to replace what we are currently have with creative work, but in places where there isn't. So it's the places where there are no illustrations. That's where we're going to be using completely generated AI stuff. Or places where we don't have a video, that's where we're going to use completely generated stuff. The things where we we pay a lot of attention to, the, that stance, those people, I think, are not going to lose their jobs. Their jobs are just going to be transformed where they... We reward AI whisperers, people who are really good at working with AI. Um, they will have an advantage, um, in producing things, just like if you can use Photoshop or Adobe Premiere and you're making mm-hmm. things, that's, those are the tools that you want to get good at. And so, um, yeah. I think it's, and that, that goes beyond just the generative stuff to, you know, other ways that, that these AIs will facilitate what it is that we do. Yes, it will replace some jobs, but in almost every case where we'll we place this, it's either something we aren't doing and wouldn't do or something that we hate doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, yeah, you should be picking lettuce. It should be, um, you know, mopping floors. That'd, that'd be good.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ
2: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned to me that I'd been working on this book, The Artificially Intelligent Creative, and, and sort of the conclusion that I came to was if you can combine human creativity with artificial intelligence, what you get are creative superpowers. Uh, you know, To your point, like I, the minute you said that about this podcast, my thought was, well, if I wanted to, I could go into, say, a tp 2 tool and say, take my conversation with Kevin and reorganize it in an NPR narrative style podcast. Yes. And and I could. Yes. I could totally do that. And then I would have to do the work. And so what I realized was that, you know, your imagination matters so much more. Like I remember very distinctly, I had a mentor who would go around the country um, and he would ask people, this was in, in, you know, 2013, 2011 or so, right after the, the Great Recession, and he would ask them, do you know how to use the Internet? And of course, they'd look at him dumbfounded. And then he would say, great, show me something that you've made using the Internet. And that always stayed with me. And so my default question always became when I saw a new piece of technology, what can I make with this yeah. that I couldn't before? And I realized that technical competence would actually start to decline in importance and the ability to imagine what was possible with the tool would be the, the thing that mattered most. And that's what I'm finding every day as I'm going through these various experiments with AI. I
1: might disagree a little bit on your technical competence as it think it shifts. Yeah. It, it shifts from, yeah, I don't have to know um, Photoshop, but I have to learn how to talk to the AI. I have to be really good mm-hmm. about describing. So there's a different technical skill in, in that case. Yeah. We may think that it's going to be verbal, but in fact, I think a lot of the, um, this visual stuff we've done visually and meaning that, you know, like instead of I'll sketch something to the AI as a first sketch and say, okay, here's, it's like you're talking to an actual other assistant. I'll sketch it out and they'll take the sketch and work it. And I'll use a little arrow. I say, no, 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 like right here, I want it darker and I'll scribble there and stuff. And so, um, and so that skill. It's the skill of like directing it's the skill of, like mm-hmm. conducting it's the skill of producing which are all arts themselves and um i I think that tactical stuff heads in that direction um but yeah. but it's still something it's still a skill that some people will be better at than others because of the amount of time and the the the, the way that they've deliberately increased their powers but it's still skill that can be learned and has to be learned um and I don't think the
0: stillness goes away at all. I think it just shifts. Well, it, it's it's funny you say that because you know I shared with you my little Fresh Prince of Bel Air um, parody, and uh, you know, in an attempt to animate it and do all this stuff, I you know finally got to my point of frustration. And I realized, wait a minute, I need to be self-directed enough to learn how to use this Adobe Character Animator tool. So I literally was like, great, then I can ask this to be my teacher and say, create a curriculum for me, which was mind boggling to me that it could do that and give me a relatively decent curriculum to, you know, take on these various self-directed learning projects, which I realized to your point, um, it is, it, I, And in fact, I included a section uh, titled how to talk to AI because I was watching a friend um, struggle with the note taking app that I use. And he was like, I don't get it. Why is it not doing these things? So I literally gave him a tutorial and of course, after that, his eyes kind of got wide open. He was, you know, like, holy shit, this is insane. I'm like, yep, it is. Um, well, let's get into the book. Uh, you know, I, I think that, as I mentioned, this book was really kind of a departure from a lot of your previous books. And I got the sense that this was basically a book of all the things you'd ever wanted to tell your children.
1: Yes. Well, it became that, but actually it started off
0: as a, as a book that
1: I, Kind of wrote for myself in a certain way. Um, these little bits of advice, which I try to take an entire book of, 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 wisdom, an entire lifetime experience and try to reduce it down to a single sentence. That was my little challenge was take all these complicated things I might know about, say investment and then reduce it to one or two sentences. And those sentences are a reminder to me. I, I like to, to make them into kind of a way that I can kind of repeat them to myself. So, like an example of of kind of this wisdom that I repeat to myself would be when when I can't find something in my house and I know I have one and I'm going around <laughs> looking for it and I finally find it, I'm going to I tell myself when I replace it, don't put it back where I found it, put it back where I first looked for it, and that has made a huge difference. So every time I do that, I remind myself, okay, I'm putting this back. Don't put it back where I found it. Put it back where I first looked for it. And so, um, uh these these ideas uh these little wisdoms and proverbs and maxims are are for me to kind of put them in a form that are very easily for me to remember and i remember them by doing them so like another p- p- piece of advice is whenever there is a contentious issue with two sides try to find the third side the third side will kind of break it apart the third side will will be the release from that two sided controversy and it's a way of kind of, um, we're triangulating out that, 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 that kind of insolvable, um, dilemma. And so, um, so I saw a repeat to myself. Okay. Well, I see two sides of people arguing back and forth. What's the third side? Let me, let me see if I can find the third side. So I, so these things are for me to repeat. And I thought, and I'd wish some of them that I had known long ago. I wish that I, it didn't take me 70 years to kind of get that. And so I decided to write them down for my kids now so that they would have something to repeat. And also it helped me try to distill what I knew down into something that I could repeat for
0: myself. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go through a few of them because like I said, it would be ridiculous for us to try to do this. It, it can go through all of them in our conversation, but I wanted to go through the ones that caught my attention the most. Um, one of the very first ones was, uh, if you can avoid seeking approval of others, your power is <laughs> limitless, which, Yeah. (laughs) That one I think struck me because I grew up in a, in in the Indian culture, which is basically, you know, the ultimate validation seeking society, right? What do we do? I mean, help. Look who's running, you know, 50 of the companies in the world now. Right, right. You know, and part of me wonders how much of that is, you know, motivated by the need for parental validation. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, we also live in this, you know, constant comparison world i mean in a lot of ways it's it's kind of ironic but what do we do we seek approval all day long right whether right. it's consciously or unconsciously right um, right how do you get to that point where you you know does it just aging um
1: no i think i i i i think i kind of realized that pretty early on um i have other versions of the same kind of insight which is um don't i'm trying to remember exactly how i said it but don't um don't measure your, um, inside with someone else's outside, right? Because everybody is kind of projecting to a certain extent and you don't know what they're actually like. And, and they're often not as accomplished inside as they uh, make themselves appear. But, um, uh, I, I think, um, rather than trying to seek to kind of accomplish, I have a kind of a contrary idea, which I did realize pretty early on, which is that, um, If at all possible, you kind of want to work on things that nobody have have words for right now, right? Where where there's no names for what it is that you do. Like, for instance, what you're doing right now, we don't even know what to call that. Nobody, you you have to spend some some time kind of explaining what it is. You can't just say, "Well, I'm an accountant," Uh, "I'm I'm I'm a basketball player," or you know, "I'm I'm I'm a a math professor." To explain what you're working, it takes some time. And that's a really important sign that you are, um, you know, uh, marching to your own drum, that you're on your own way, that you're, 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 you're fighting this. This is broke breakthrough territory. This is, this is where you, where you want to be because it's much more going to be reflective of your own talents and your own skills. And so, um, I, I, I think, yeah, tr- trying to head. Uh, to do things that, that they don't have a name for because you're much more likely there to do things that only you can do. And mm-hmm. that's another piece of advice
0: that's my I favorite. I remember that one. which is don't, That was probably the one, yeah, that stood out to me the most. Right?
1: Don't aim to be the best, aim to be the only. Mm-hmm. You can be the only
0: when you're, that means that you're going to be doing things that people don't have a name for. Well, I wrote a book with a subtitle, Only is Better Than Best, so. Um, That's literally the entire ethos of everything that I do. Um, So speaking of that, there there are two things that you say. One is that getting a job is not ideal for the long term because then you only get paid when you're working. And to pair that with the other one, which you just talked about, and you said that if nobody else does what you do, you'll never need a resume. Um, So, you know, I wanted to talk about those two things because uh, I know that the question of a thousand true fans and the group, you know, viability of it in such a noisy world came up. Um, and I remember I wrote a counter argument to that, even though I, you know, uh, had, you know, I believed strongly in the principles of a thousand true fans. I, I remember I thought, you know, let me start with this idea and see if it resonates. Uh-huh. I mean, and it was a hundred true fanatics uh, mm-hmm. instead of a thousand true fans. Uh, but talking about that, I mean, in a noisy world, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is this still a viable way of thinking about it? Um, doing your own thing and, and you know, right, right. being the person who doesn't need a resume. Right, right. Yeah,
1: so so the, the premise of the 1,000 True Fans in brief was that um, if you have direct engagement with your fans, customers, audience, and you don't have the intermediary with a publisher or a studio or a label, um, if you have direct engagement with your fans, you don't need as many of them as you think. You could theoretically... Um, Make a living with just a thousand true fans. True fans mean that they're going to buy whatever you produce, no matter what it is. They're your true fans. And, um, that was, that was a theory. That was a hypothesis when I first suggested it. Yeah. I don't know more than 15 years ago. And, um, it's now viable because of the platforms like Kickstarter, Patreon, YouTube monetization all these other social media stuff um, and other tools have now enabled people to do that. So there are many, many people in the world, and I know that because they've told me, who have um, are supported by their fans directly. And they aren't millions of fans. Again, there's thousands of them rather than millions. And that's a huge difference, because that's a much more um, feasible thing to aim for than to become a mega star and have to have millions of fans. Mm-hmm. Um, there's huge disadvantages to millions of fans. So anyway, that's become much more feasible. There are a lot of people doing it. There are a lot of more tools to make it do it. And, and you can have hybrid versions. You can you know, still do some things with your fans directly and others with a New York publisher, as I do. I've done several very successful Kickstarter um, uh, campaigns, but I also work with New York publishers like this book, Excellent Device, is being published in New York. And it just depends on kind of what I'm trying to do. But I at least have that option. And it's really a great option to have for people starting off. It's still viable. It's still really good. It's still, um, extremely powerful way to, to do it. But the caveat is you have, to, it, it's a, at least a full time job, maybe a half time job dealing with your fans yeah. and not everybody is suited for it. Not everybody wants to do it. Some people would just want to write. They don't want to have to deal with fans every day. Um, some people are incapable of it. They're just not personality is not suited to try and make that engagement with fans and being on social media and being there so so there is a cost to it that you have to be willing to to, to pay um, and also as you scale up or if you're a duet or a duo or a team you have to multiply the numbers by the number of people there and that also gets bigger in terms of the number that you need but I think in general, um, this is still a really viable option for people. And um, it's often a great place to start, even if you don't kind of end up there. Uh, it's a great, easy way to start. Um, and the thing about it is this niche world is that uh, even if what you're interested in appeals to only one in a million people, it's really obscure. It's really odd. It's really weird, but because there's billions of people in the world, that means that there's gonna, there could be at least another thousand people like you with the same one in a million taste, and that's good news. You can have a business around that. You could be a creator, um, in that way, appealing to the one in a million. But there's a thousand of you in the world, and so the 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 test is the 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 technology that we're trying to develop is how to match up, how to connect. How how have those people find you and you find them and that's still
0: something that um we need better tools for yeah. i mean i you know based on on that article and my own experiences um had sort of made the observation that as the media landscape you know became more and more fragmented uh loyalty would become far more important than reach yeah exactly I think that's true so. One other thing that you say in this book, um, that caught my attention was this following your bliss is a recipe for paralysis. If you don't know what mm-hmm. you're passionate about, a better path for most people is to master something. Yeah. Mastery of one thing, you'll command a viewpoint to steadily find where your bliss is. And it, it kind of echoes some of Kel Newport's point yep. of, you know, so good they can't ignore you. Uh, which, you know, I, I think that this sort of passion narrative, um, is catchy. It sounds good. You know, it makes for nice commencement speeches. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, map to reality for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I found that with our own, our own kids with the same was that we were always encouraging them to follow your bliss, you know, follow your passions. But when they got to school, it's like, this is like, I don't know what I'm interested in. I don't have the passion. What do I do? And the, the realization was, well, master something, master, be, just put it in the, thousands of hours and master something. It almost doesn't matter because you're not going to stay there. You, once you've mastered it, you can use that mastery to help you keep moving into other things, but you have to master something. And, um, um and so that's, you know, that's what I've seen work best with the kids of the friends that I have is is those that kind of early on get the idea that they're going to master something is they're not gonna stay there. They're they're very unlikely with this kind of fast moving world to to continue, although some might. My my wife is one of those kind of people who decided what she wanted to be in high school and she became that. But most of us don't have that kind of a path. Um we move around. But if we if we move from mastering something to mastering another thing, that's really the path to do it. So even if you don't know what it is, choose something at random and just decide you're gonna become world class about it and
0: that will set you off. Yeah. Well, I want to finish with two final things. Um, One was another quote from the book where you said, the stronger your beliefs, the stronger your reasons to question them regularly. Don't simply believe everything you think you believe. You're the co-founder of a media outlet and we're in a media landscape that is notorious for the spread of misinformation. Um, And, you know, I I think in a lot of ways, one of the things that I found to be really dangerous but also fascinating about the internet is that it's become this breeding ground for confirmation bias. That's true. So how do you get people who are so, you know, stubborn uh, about their own beliefs to develop this habit? And why is that so important? Well, um,
1: I I think this issue of who, how do we trust things? I mean, part of the thing about chat gpt is is that it will make up stuff it's creative it's it's, it's imaginative how do we learn what to, to believe uh, what it says or does and how much how how much truthfulness is it um and that kind of bleeds over to just generally how do we believe anything that we read i think this is this is the big frontier that we're going to address and i think it's um technological i think it's um I think we need new tools that we don't have. Um, I think to, you know, there's a, I think we need some very deep infrastructural, um, things to work. I, in my own experience, I wrote an article in 1984, a cover story for Hogarth, where I was publisher and editor that was called the end of evidence, the end of photography as the evidence of anything. This was before Photoshop, but we were. I was, I, I found about, uh, about a machine that was basically photoshopping before Photoshop. And so it was like, oh my gosh, we're never going to be able to believe photographs anymore. And that was in 84. So what can we believe? Well, it turns out that the only way you can tell from a photograph, whether to believe it or not, or a piece of text or, uh, uh, some sound is not by looking at the text or the photograph or the sound. It's by looking at the source. So, so we are gonna to come to something where we have to embed in a kind of maybe cryptological way, the source of uh, uh, the provenance of things, because that's really the only way that we can rapidly tell whether to trust something or not is where did it come from? Who made it? Are they trustworthy? And then we have to have ways to to kind of assign trust to those kinds of institutions or sources. So what I'm suggesting is, yes, there's a lot of kind of technical literacy needed a lot of kind of, you know, uh, good um, internet etiquette or um, critical thinking skills for individuals, but that's not enough. I, I, I think we're also going to need uh, infrastructural development and new tools to help us um, get to the point where we can know what to trust in this age of
0: disinformation. Well, I want to finish with my final question. I know you got to get going here. Yeah, um, yeah, What is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Which is really important because I think what you want to do in life is aim towards being a kind of person that's very hard for AI to predict, right? I mean, that's, we don't want to be predictable because it's autocomplete. These things are just autocomplete. And if you can be, completed, if you can be autocompleted by a, a bot, then you're not, you're not distinctive enough to, to to be the only. So um, what can you do? I think one of the things I would say is your views on one, this is a piece of advice from the book, your views on one um issue should not be able, should not be predicted from your other views. Um it, it, if, if it is, if your views on one thing can be predicted from your views on others, that means that you're basically, you're in a grip of an ideology of some sort or other. So, um, I would say, um, try to have, um, your own personal earned views on, on things, which means it's a lot more work. Um, but, um, constantly, um, question what you believe. Because here's the other thing. It's another piece of advice. It's a certainty that many of the things that I believe today will be cringeworthy and embarrassing in the future. And my goal is. To to find out where am I wrong? So I so was like, where, I, what do I believe that is wrong? And I spent a lot of time on that. And that would be a way to do it, is to assume you're wrong in at least 25% of your beliefs and spend some time trying to figure
0: out what they might be. Hmm. Amazing, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Um, where can people find out more about you and the the new book and everything else that you're up to?
1: Yeah, I have a very easy website with my initials, kk.org. Um, and there'll be links there. Um, if you search for Amazon for excellent advice for living, it's all now in pre-order. And, um, it's a little tiny pocketable book that's ideally made to give to others, uh, as a reminder for some of these bits of advice, much of which is ancient. Um, but I put it into my own words. So, um, Shriva, thank you for, um, hosting me, inviting me to chat with you. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, and appreciate the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.